I've been thinking quite a bit lately about sacraments, particularly the Eucharist. Our Walk in Love book study group had a lively discussion last week about baptism and the Eucharist. And hopefully we will have another one today when we focus on the Eucharist. And also in my own journey, I've been reflecting on the Eucharist for a number of reasons. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I was reminded of an exam question that I had to answer during my Iona training in our theology year. The question read something like this. Is there a reason for humans to try to model Trinitarian relations? Can we actually engage in the perichoresis or dance of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Or are we too limited in our humanity to achieve even a taste of that divine state. Dr. Catherine Tanner, the Frederick Marquand Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale University Divinity School, says we cannot enter into this union directly due to our human limitations. Only in the eschaton, in the end times, when we have shuffled off this mortal coil will we be able to be fully assumed into that Trinitarian oneness. Until then, the best we can hope for, according to Tanner, is a more external form of fellowship. We still receive the gifts of the Spirit and conduct our lives according to our relationship with Christ, but only as far as our humanness allows. In her book, Jesus, Humanity, and the Trinity, Tanner writes, human beings in their finitude or their finiteness are not able to be, and her word is, interpenetrative or kind of mutually permeating as the persons of the Trinity are. We can engage with God and others in a manner resembling the Trinity, united with God, through Christ, with the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's it. The tangible, physical connection that seems to exist within the Trinity just can't happen for us. I think she's missing something. If human beings, because of their humanness, are precluded from existing in essential relationship with the Trinity, then what happened during Jesus' human life on earth? Was he somehow suspended from full assumption into that lovely dance? Or did his fully divine nature override his human nature to keep him in full participation? We don't know. Because that is part of the holy mystery. There's also a mystical element present for Christians, to me, most evident in the sacrament of Holy Eucharist. 
This mystical bit brings us into the dance, not only with Christ and the Trinity, but also with the Christ and the Trinity in the other persons involved. According to the Catechism in the Book of Common Prayer, a sacrament is the outward and visible sign of inward and spiritual grace given by Christ as sure as certain means by which we receive that grace. This definition implies two aspects for every sacrament, symbolic and visible, and mysterious and invisible. In 2000, excuse me, 2007, Pope Benedict XVI, in his exhortation, Sacramentum Caritatis, speaks of how the Eucharist draws us into Jesus' act of self-oblation, in which we enter into the very dynamic of his self-giving, and Jesus draws us into himself. The Eucharist is the symbolic and visible act of remembrance of Christ's sacrifice for us. What happens as we partake of the bread and wine is the invisible mystery. Benedict asserts that the church in Christ is a sacrament, a sign of communion with God. And he quotes St. Cyprian regarding the church as a people made one by the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A sacrament of Trinitarian communion. Finally, Benedict states that the Eucharist gives us a foretaste of the eschatological fulfillment for which every human being and all creation are destined. Maybe there is something of the Trinitarian nature in human relations, at least through the Holy Eucharist. Hans Urs von Balthasar, a 20th century theologian and a friend of Pope Benedict's, writes of divine love as a gift that includes the ability to respond as a finite creature to the infinite and whose heart and essence is love. Absolute love that approaches man in revelation, goes out to meet him, invites him, and elevates him to an inconceivable intimacy. He uses the lovely analogy of a mother smiling at her newborn child for days until at last the child smiles back. The mother has awakened the love in her child. Balthazar argues that God does the same for mankind, radiating love to kindle love in our hearts. And the church and the world live historically in relation to this image of the Christ who comes again. So upon what are we to pattern our relationships if not the perfect example of the Trinity? Christ himself gives us the best arguments. In John 13, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
In today's gospel, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. You did not choose me, but I chose you. In John 17, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The Apostle Paul chips in as well. In Galatians, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In 2 Corinthians, for it is the God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The writer of 1 John says, God is love. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. However, I find in my limited human relations that most often love is God. It takes on many forms in many locations. The selfless love between my partner and me, the unconditional love between my mother and me, the open and honest love between my friends and me, in the everyday encounters with people I meet, and the sharing of the Eucharist here with you. Somehow, mysteriously, God is there. Always. I don't fully understand it. I can't fully articulate it. If I could, it wouldn't be God. But I've felt it, and I know it's real. We believe that Christ becomes truly present in the bread and wine. We take him in to comfort and strengthen us. But let us never forget that it's not just about getting our wafer of Jesus every week. It's not just a solitary action designed to comfort us individually. We come to the table, but we can't stay here basking in God's grace. Remember the phrase from Eucharistic Prayer C, Deliver us from the presumption of coming to this table for solace only and not for strength, for pardon only and not for renewal. There's a reason we are officially dismissed every week. It's more than a dismissal. It's a charge to go out and share what we have received. God knows, no pun intended, that we must work harder than ever now to work together in unity and love, thinking first of the other and loving him, her, them as ourselves. It won't be easy, and it certainly won't be perfect. It will be as messy as we humans can make it. 
Jesus calls us to be his friends, to dwell in him as he is in us. But more importantly, he asks us to bear fruit and to bear witness to the unimaginable love and radical grace given to all the children of God. Amen.